drop stay up to date. Episodes drop the last Friday. It's the night, it's the night, forgot that. It's the night, it's the night, forgot that. It's the night, it's the night, forgot that. And welcome to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, I wanted to chime in on a hot topic that's been making waves on social media. It's called Nepo Babies. This completely new concept that some people out there get hired because of nepotism more specifically in the entertainment industry. You see, people on TikTok who haven't discovered Google or Wikipedia are finding out that some of their favorite actors or directors or showrunners are the sons and daughters or cousins or uncles of someone famous. And for some reason, they're being dragged through the mud because of that. I'm not sure why this is such a big deal. There's nepotism in every industry. Have you ever passed by a store that says Johnson & Sons? Guess who's going to take over that business when Buford Johnson passes? It's his sons. And how many people have family members that follow in their footsteps? You don't think they're using their connections? Of course they are. But even if it isn't your own family member, people use the connections that they have to get ahead. It's called networking. When I was thinking about leaving my very first job after five years, I confided to a coworker that I submitted a resume, and he said, Oh, I know the person hiring. Give me your resume. I'll send it directly to them. Sure, that isn't nepotism, but it's still using a connection to get ahead. I don't feel bad about that. My bank account doesn't either. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is because the first two films that I picked for the Matt Forgot That podcast was True Lies and Dave, both featuring people that would be considered Nepo Babies, Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver. But the question that I pose back to these people who are so butthurt that these actors have careers, do you really think that Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver don't deserve it? Look at their filmographies. They've won or been nominated for many awards. They're also trailblazers. Jamie Lee Curtis as a scream queen, Sigourney Weaver as the action heroine Ellen Ripley. But I suppose people have a problem with those that may not deserve it. Okay, I see your point there. But here's the thing. Yes, their family members might have helped them get a foot in the door, but it's their talent that keeps them there. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fare, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. In this episode of the podcast, I'm rewatching and reviewing Dave from 1993. It was directed by Ivan Reitman, who helmed Meatballs, Stripes, Ghostbusters, Twins, Junior, Evolution, and Draft Day. 
The screenplay was written by Gary Ross, who scribed Big, Mr. Baseball, Pleasantville, Seabiscuit, The Hunger Games, and Ocean's 8. It stars Kevin Kline as President Bill Mitchell and doppelganger Dave Kovic. He was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. He graduated from Indiana University Bloomington, where he majored in theater and speech. He received a scholarship to Juilliard, where he was classmates with Patti Lapone and David Ogden Styers, and studied under John Hausman at the Acting Company. He spent the majority of the 70s in theater productions across the United States, winning two Tony Awards in 1978 for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for On the 20th Century, and in 1981 for Best Actor in a Musical for The Pirates of Penzance. He ventured into film in 1982 in Sophie's Choice, opposite Meryl Streep. In 1983, he reprised the role of the Pirate King in The Pirates of Penzance for the big screen. This would be followed by two Lawrence Kasdan-directed movies, The Big Chill and Silverado. After appearing in Violets Are Blue and Cry Freedom, he won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for A Fish Called Wanda. He would go on to have parts in The January Man, Soap Dish, Chaplin, French Kiss, In and Out, Life as a House, and The Lovely. He co-starred in The Good House and The Ice Storm with Sigourney Weaver, who portrays First Lady Ellen Mitchell. A native New Yorker, she was born to a showbiz family. Her mother was British actress Elizabeth Inglis. Her father, Pat Weaver, was the president of ABC and creator of The Today Show. Her uncle, Doodles Weaver, was a comedian and writer for Mad Magazine. As a teenager, she started to become interested in performing. She changed her name to Sigourney, based on a character from The Great Gatsby, believing it suited her more than her birth name, Susan. She briefly attended Sarah Lawrence College before transferring to Stanford University, where she was an English major. After graduating, she was accepted into Yale University's School of Drama. Her feature film debut was a bit part in Annie Hall, but her breakthrough role would be two years later as Ellen Ripley in Alien. This would be followed up by The Year of Living Dangerously and Deal of the Century. During her audition for Ghostbusters, the creators weren't convinced that Sigourney could do comedy, so she got on the couch and started acting like a dog, which convinced Ivan Reitman to cast her as Dana Barrett. She was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Aliens in 1987. Two years later, she would be a double nominee, one for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Working Girl, and one for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Gorillas in the Mist. One of my favorite actresses, she was great in the underrated Galaxy Quest, and currently appears on the big screen in the Avatar sequel. This is what I remember. The basic plot. A lookalike takes the place of the current president. I don't remember the circumstances, but that was the premise. I think. There was also one scene where the lookalike defied a member of the staff, and it was pretty memorable. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. The cast! What a remarkable group of talented people. Frank Langella, Laura Linney, Ving Rames, Ben Kingsley, Faith Prince, Charles Grodin, Bonnie Hunt, and there's more. A-plus casting. So let's jump into it. The president, Bill Mitchell, returns to the White House after a successful trip. He speaks to his staff about the upcoming agenda, which includes a speech at the legal council at Monroe Hotel. He asks if they've found another double to stand out front because the last guy was a joke. 
Dave Kovic is the affable owner of a temp employment agency who has a side hustle as an impersonator of the president. While performing as the commander-in-chief at a local Chevrolet car dealership, Secret Service members are in the crowd observing his performance. When Dave comes home, he's greeted by Special Agent Dwayne Stevenson, who informs him that when the president is at a public function in exposed situations, they will hire a double for security purposes, and asks if he wants to stand in. Dave agrees and is given a presidential makeover. He's instructed by Bob Alexander, the chief of staff, that he's to wave from the door, come down the stairs, and get into the limo. As President Mitchell makes his scheduled speech, his doppelganger waits in a hotel room with the Secret Service. At the signal, he's escorted down the hall to make his cameo appearance, and breaks protocol by saying to the onlookers, God bless America. Meanwhile, President Mitchell stays at the hotel to play Hail to the Chief with his secretary, polite euphemism. During their affair, he has a stroke and falls into a coma. White House Communications Director Alan Reed wants to inform the Vice President, but Bob Alexander has a different plan. Special Agent Stevenson receives a call in the limo where Dave is being driven home, and he's informed of the situation. They turn the vehicle around, and Dave is brought to the Oval Office to meet with Alan and Bob. They propose that their partnership extends due to the President's health issue. The citizens of the United States need to feel safe and secure, knowing that President Mitchell is in full control. Dave is resistant to the idea, but eventually agrees for the good of the country. Here's a quote without context. Ho <laughs> ho die you pond scum. Dave was an entertaining movie, but it wasn't as funny as I anticipated. I wasn't bored. I just thought it was more of a laugh riot than it turned out to be. In fact, it was quite dramatic in some places. But I suppose the whole premise is ridiculous on its face. And you have to suspend your disbelief for a bit. But it's all in good fun, so don't overthink it. As I mentioned, this is a great cast, so the acting is really strong. Kevin Klein does a good job in having distinct characteristics between the president and his doppelganger. Sigourney Weaver is amazing, as the first lady who's kind of going through the motions. She no longer has a real relationship with her husband. And even though she's playing jilted, she's not unlikable. You're on her side. And then Frank Langella, he was definitely tapping into some Skeletor in this role. But then again, now that I think about it, the only other film I've seen him in is Masters of the Universe. The makeup team also did a very good job, because when the two characters were together, there were subtle differences between their appearances, which helped make the story a little more believable. They aren't 100% the same person, despite being played by the same actor. Now for a little trivial trivia. The Oval Office set has been reused in many movies and television series, including The Pelican Brief, Clear and Present Danger, and Absolute Power. The cinematography was captured by Adam Greenberg, whose filmography includes The Terminator, La Bamba, Three Men and a Baby, Ghost, Rush Hour, and Snakes on a Plane. It was edited by Sheldon Kahn, who worked on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Private Benjamin, Ghostbusters, Out of Africa, Kindergarten Cop, and Space Jam. The score was composed by James Newton Howard, who wrote the music for The Prince of Tides, The Fugitive, My Best Friend's Wedding, The Village, Michael Clayton, Defiance, and News of the World, all of which he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Music, Original Score. The runtime is 1 hour 50 minutes. It had a budget of $28 million and grossed $92 million at the box office. It was nominated for one Oscar at the 1994 Academy Awards for Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen by Gary Ross. I give it 
three and a half out of five stars. If you've seen Dave and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. Cutting Crew are a band that was formed in London. The original incarnation lasted from 1985 to 1993, led by Nick Van Eed, who was the primary songwriter, guitarist Kevin McMichael, bassist Colin Farley, and drummer Martin Frosty Beetle. Their debut album, Broadcast, was released in 1986 and reached number 16 on the U.S. Billboard 200, on the back of the single, I Just Died in Your Arms, which reached number one on the singles chart. The second single, I've Been in Love Before, would peak at number nine. The album was certified gold in the United States. Their follow-up, The Scattering, two years later, garnered little attention despite having a minor hit with Everything But My Pride. Shortly after the release of their third album, Compass Mentis, the band parted ways. After their breakup, Kevin McMichael co-wrote songs and contributed guitar on the album Fate of Nations by Robert Plant. After playing drums for Boy George, Sinead O'Connor, Sarah Brightman, and Gloria Gaynor, Martin Frosty Beetle would play in the pit of the West End production of Mamma Mia, where he would be the longest tenured member. Bassist Colin Farley moved on to engineering and producing albums and continues to play in local bands. In 2003, Nick Van Eed formed the group Grinning Souls and released one album, but after it was unsuccessful, that band became a reformed version of Cutting Crew, which continues to tour today. I became reacquainted with the band when I Just Died in Your Arms was featured in Season 3, Episode 1 of Stranger Things. Inevitable Stranger Things reference. Alright, thanks. It was a scene where Mrs. Wheeler was getting ready for her, um, lesson with Billy. As soon as I heard it, I'm like, yes, I remember that song. Whatever happened to that band? So now you know. I've picked a couple of music videos from their greatest hits, and they're all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about American Gladiators. Created by Dan Carr and John Ferraro, and initially developed in the early 80s with a pilot being shot at an auditorium in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was repackaged as a potential movie project before settling on the format that would make it famous, which was inspired by the 1987 movie The Running Man. There are two men and two women contestants who square off against each other in a series of competitions that test their athletic skills, which includes facing gladiators that aim to stop them. There were usually six events where the contestants accumulated points, leading to the finale called The Eliminator, where the first person that crosses the line wins. Most people fondly remember the program in its heyday, with bright studio lights and slick production, but in the first season, there were plywood cutouts in the stands with faces painted on them to hide their lack of studio audience. The referees also wore executioner hoods and made thumbs-up or thumbs-down gestures, inspired by the medieval motif. The first two seasons were recorded at Universal Studios Hollywood, before moving to the larger CBS Studio Center, aka Gladiator Arena, for the run of the show. 
The opening theme was composed by Bill Conti, who famously wrote the music for the Rocky franchise, and won an Academy Award for Best Music Original Score for The Right Stuff. It was hosted by Mike Adamley throughout the series' run. He was joined by commentator Joe Theismann, Todd Christensen, but the pairing with Larry Zonka was the most closely associated to the show. This was one of my favorites growing up, a perfect complement on Saturday mornings with WWF superstars and GLOW. My favorite event was the Assault. Contestants had 60 seconds to navigate a course that featured stations with projectiles that they would use to try and hit a target that was located above a gladiator, who was shooting tennis balls at them. My friends and I actually set up a course in his backyard. He had a deck where one of us would stand with the Super Soaker, and the contestant would have to wear a hypercolor shirt. If you don't know what that is, please look it up. But it changed colors when it got wet. We used garbage cans, a hose reel, anything we could find as blockades. Yeah, this is what we did before the internet. There were two spin-offs, Gladiators 2000, which was a children's game show hosted by Ryan Seacrest. Yes, that Ryan Seacrest. The series lasted two seasons. Then there was a revamped version hosted by Hulk Hogan and Layla Ali, which also lasted two seasons. American Gladiators was on for seven seasons, 208 episodes from 1989 to 1996. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and review. Welcome to the Matt... Oh, I almost said Matt, watch that. It stars Kevin Klein as President Bitchel... <laughs>